We've now come to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, and we'll read verses 1 to 11, which in the first part especially takes up some warnings, and then in verses 7 to 11, a few exhortations, and even a warning or two contained there. Before we do read this and study it, let us remind ourselves of what James has said in chapter 1. Let's see what James has said in chapter 1. Because when we gather to study the Word, it's often the case that we come with wrong motives. We don't come for the right reasons. We don't come to understand the will of God, His wisdom, and then to obey it, to believe it, and then to obey it. And if we don't obey it, we are fakers. We are professing to know God, but by our deeds we are denying Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Titus 1.16. So, James, in James 1, he reminds us not to be that way. Let's begin at verse 16. 1.16. James 1.16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Amen. Chapter 5 now, 5, 1 to 11. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed 
who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Amen. Chapter 5, verse 1, he begins with, Come now. He did the same in 4.13. Come now, you who say. In 5, verse 1, Come now, you rich. Come now is an invitation and actually a way to bring attention, uh, stark attention to what he is about to say. And it's even, in a sense, an irony or a sarcastic way. Bring attention or give me your attention. Pay attention to what I'm about to say because what I'm about to say will be contrary to the way you think. Like in 4.13 to 17, they thought today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet he contradicts their boastful assertion that they will be able to accomplish all of this without the assistance, without the will of God. Because he says in 14, 414, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. In the same way, he challenges in chapter 5 the rich. In chapter 4, those who attempt to be rich. And in chapter 5, 1 to 6, those who are already rich. And he says, come now, you rich. They are already rich. And now he's challenging them, drawing attention to something he's about to say. And notice, usually when people address the rich, they usually speak in very smooth and flattering, soft, endearing words, but not the, the apostle, the true apostle, by the Holy Spirit. He says here, come now, you rich, which is not a good way to address people anyways, not according to modern conventions of how to make friends and influence people. That's not the way. He says, come now, you rich. You rich. Whenever we introduce an addressee that way, it's usually not pleasant. And here, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Weep and howl. He's calling on them to have misery, sorrow over sin, to mourn, and humble themselves before the Lord. That's what they ought to do. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, 6 to 10, where he's used similar terms. Chapter 4, 6 to 10. But he gives a greater grace, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's necessary for us to be humble before the Lord, to submit to the Lord to have the Lord's grace working in us because we are sinners, we're double-minded, and many of us are rich. And with riches and other circumstances like this in life, the rich have a tendency to be proud, to be haughty, to be self-sufficient, to not depend on God, to think that they are well and good and blessed in the sight of God, for eternal life. They may be monetarily blessed, but they're not blessed spiritually, not necessarily. And therefore, the rich must keep this in mind. Now, in chapter 5, verse 1, he doesn't mean to include every single rich person. He's about to explain to us 
the rich who are the wicked rich, the rich who are the haughty rich, the rich who are the oppressive rich, the rich who exploit others. Because not every rich man does so. Contrary to socialism and communism, which is actually a, a big scam. Because they like rich people, just a few of them themselves. But all the rest of us are supposed to be experiencing death and mass misery, equal economic misery. That's really what socialism and communism is. But the Bible's not talking about that. It's, when it says you rich, it's talking about the wicked rich who are oppressive and who exploit with their power those who have less power and those who have less money. He's talking about them. For example, in the Bible, we have many who were rich and, and very rich. Abraham, yeah. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph were very rich. Even those who were in forms of government or officials in government in different uh, other settings, like Nehemiah, he was the governor under the Persians. Daniel, he was one of the best officials in both the Persian and Babylonian kingdoms, and therefore he would not have been a pauper. Right. He would not have been starving day to day. He would have been treated very well. Esther and Mordecai, they were also. Solomon was. David was. We could go on and on. There are many examples of the physically or monetarily rich who did not use their resources to exploit others. In the New Testament, we have the same. Zacchaeus, he was rich, but he was not told to give up everything. But he was willing because he knew it was self-evident that he exploited people and defrauded. And whomever he defrauded, he said he was going to pay back fourfold. Luke 19, 1 to 10. And if if in the case of the poor, he would give half of his possessions to the poor. It didn't say 90% of his possessions or 99% of his possessions, but half of his possessions to the poor to help them. And even Jesus benefited from a rich man. Doesn't it say in the prophet Isaiah, with a rich man in his death? That is, he was buried in a rich man's tomb. A cave tomb would have been a rich man's tomb because only the rich would be able to afford a cave to be the place of their burial. So it's not riches in and of themselves, but it is the love of riches, the haughtiness or the pride that comes with riches, and then the exploitation of others with the riches. This is what he is addressing here. Those who are this way, sinfully and wicked in their riches, he reminds them of some things. Verse 2. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your riches, your garments, rotted and moth-eaten. Why would they rot, and why would they become moth-eaten? Because... They were preserved and unused. They were preserved, stashed away, stored away, put away in large places, large barns and treasuries, and then rotted and became moth-eaten. They should have cycled them. They should have distributed them. They should have given to the poor. They should have helped others with their riches and garments, yet they didn't. They preserve them as though they're going to be using them, but not. They did not. Therefore, they rotted and became moth-eaten. The same in verse 3. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. He says, your gold and your silver they preserved the gold and silver for so long that they became rusted because of the impure elements within them. They would have had to be stored for a long time for that to happen. 
they were very selfish in their riches, not concerned about the needs of others, the willing and voluntary helping of the poor. That was not their concern. But he says that you will be consumed and will consume your flesh like fire. That is, now they will be destroyed and they are being destroyed, but there is a greater consequence. He says, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. He has, or the translation here has an exclamation. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. You have stored up your treasure here thinking that you are safe and secure. When actually you have stored up your treasure for the wrath of God on the day of judgment in the last days. He has the day of judgment and the return of the Lord in mind here in chapter 5, verse 3, and even in 5, verse 8, when he says, For the coming of the Lord is near. The coming of the Lord is near. The Lord is there. He's at the door. Verse 9, the judge is standing right at the door. The return of Christ, the day of judgment, are imminent. And when that day comes, those who have not prepared themselves to meet the Lord will suddenly, suddenly find that their riches were of no help, to no avail. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. 6, 19 to 24. Matthew 6, 19. Our Lord says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Impossible. The treasure that we store up now should be treasure that is laid up in heaven. That is, eternal treasure is of greater value than temporal, physical, earthly treasure. How many of us really believe this? How many of us live this way? Very few. Very few. Our Lord as well in Luke 12. Luke 12, 13 says something similar. And he says it in reference to the possibility of sudden death. Sudden death. These days, we read of sudden death. Heart attacks, cardiac arrest, died suddenly, news headlines, if you're paying attention to the news and the right news sources. Why? Because of the so-called vaccinations that took place two years ago and one year ago. Many people are dying. But death happens suddenly for many other reasons, car accidents and so forth. Luke 12, 13. We have a rich man here in Luke 12, verse 13. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. 
For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many good goods laid up for, your, for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Laying up treasure for oneself and not being rich toward God. We must be rich toward God. Amen. And not grieve or walk away when this truth is proclaimed. Luke 18. Luke 18, 18. Luke 18, 18 to 30. And a certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things impossible with men are possible with God. And Peter said, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. But in this case, the rich young ruler turned away and walked away. Right. He was not only extremely sad, but he turned away from these words of truth. We've been speaking generally of the fact that there are some who are rich and who want to become rich and that this is an eternal snare. It's a damnable snare. But also ministers, or those who claim to be ministers and shepherds of the flocks of God, worldwide, not just in the United States, but worldwide. And not just in Pentecostal charismatic churches, but also in every other church, every other denomination. Even in Reformed churches, this enticement and this sin is present. And therefore, we find in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, 6 to 10, this warning. 1 Timothy 6, 6. Remember, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, known as pastoral epistles, are written to two pastors, two young pastors, Timothy and Titus where there are many things said about the qualifications and duties of the pastor or shepherd, the elders of the church, and warnings about what commonly happens among the leadership 
in churches, among elders and deacons. He says this. We actually may start at 6, verse 3. 6, 3 to 10. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. False teachers, they are conceited. They do not desire as the goal of our life godliness, as he says in verse 3, the doctrine conforming to godliness. No, they are in it for themselves. They are worried about their own skin, not about the souls of men, but saving their skin. They want reputation. They want a flock. They want a large following. And then the money that comes with the large following. Instead of being content with food and covering, they have their greedy eyes fixed on riches. This is a warning. 617, 617 to 19, same chapter. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Returning to James, James chapter 5, verse 4, he speaks here of withholding Pay to the laborers, to those who mowed the fields and those who did the harvesting. And they, having having had their pay withheld, they cry out to God in heaven. And when they cry out to God in heaven, he is called here in chapter 5, verse 4, the Lord of Sabaoth. That is a transliteration. If it were to be translated, it would be the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts. And whenever in the Old Testament it says Lord of hosts, it is a warning usually by the prophet to the people, a warning that you better repent of your sins. You better turn away from your sins or else the Lord of heaven who has an angelic army of angels may be sent to execute judgment against you. And the Lord of heaven may amass the armies of men, whether good men or evil men. Yes, like the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. He may assemble an army of even evil men doing the will of God against you to destroy you. So whenever it says Lord of hosts, That should be a warning to us. And here they are told, you have oppressed these people. They should have been paid properly, timely, in a timely manner, but you did not. And they depend on it. They have to feed themselves. They have to feed their families. They have to clothe themselves. They have to clothe their families. 
So why are you withholding their pay? And I, Lord in heaven, I will judge you. I will certainly punish you. This is found in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. We will see a few of these Old Testament passages because often when we think of the wrath of God, we think only of Old Testament, but not the mercy of God in the Old Testament. We think of mercy of God, New Testament, wrath of God, judgment of God, Old Testament. However, that paradigm is false, it's phony, and it comes from Satan. It's really not true. It does not fit the evidence of the, the Bible at all. And we'll see this. Leviticus 19, 19, 13. 19, 13, and 14. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Deuteronomy 24, 14. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he may not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes sin in you. James the Apostle is alluding to this passage here because when the wage is withheld, when it's supposed to be given at the end of the day, typically with laborers, day laborers, that's how it happens because they are usually poor and needy. And when they're not paid that way, it's withheld. They cry out to the Lord and then God recognizes their justice, the need for justice, and he will certainly mete out his justice against their sin. Also, 24.14, when it says aliens, it means legal alien, not illegal alien. There is no indulgence with illegal aliens in the Bible. Also, contrary to modern uh, politicians, especially Democrats. Proverbs 3, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 28. Proverbs 3, 28. Do not devise harm or evil against your neighbor. Uh, Excuse me, let me go back to 28. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not devise harm or evil against your neighbor while he lives in security beside you. Beside you. 3.28 and 3.29. Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah 22.13. Jeremiah 22 and verse 13. Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice, who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi 3 verse 5. Malachi 3 verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely 
and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. There is also in the Old Testament a proper understanding of widows and orphans. Even James, even James has this understanding. He's not meaning that all the poor, by definition, deserves whatever they need and want. He's not saying that either. Because they might be the wicked poor. And wicked people are also greedy. Wicked people also steal. Or poor people are also wicked in theft. They also murder one another. They murder one another more than the poor uh, murder rich people. They murder each other to get what they want. But James, in James 1.27, he says here, orphans and widows in their distress. Orphans and widows in their distress. There are some widows who are very wealthy and they have no distress, except in years past, they lost their husband. But currently, they may not be in distress. In fact, currently, they might be wicked. There are wicked widows. There are wicked orphans. There are wicked needy people, wicked poor people. Isaiah 9, 17. Isaiah 9, 17. He says, the prophet, Therefore, the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. God is also angry at wicked orphans and widows and young men and whoever they may be because they refuse to repent. James has this in view also. Now let's return to James 5 and now verses 5 and 6. 5.5, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Their hearts are fattened and their bodies are fattened too. They fatten their hearts, they fatten their hands, they fatten their whole being, physically speaking. They console themselves into thinking that, you know, I have a very good life. God is with me. God is on my side. But actually... He is referring to those animals and usually domesticated animals, domestic animals like herds, like cattle, like pigs or swine and like cows and bulls who are raised by their ranchers for the purpose of fattening them. Their purpose, their existence is to become fattened, to have plenty to eat, plenty to drink, so that at the right time, the owner, the master of these animals, will slaughter them, the day of slaughter. And here, this is signifying how the people are living like dumb animals, fattening themselves, living luxuriously themselves, when actually, like animals don't realize it. Often, does the animal realize that he is about to experience death? No. He doesn't realize it. And same with the wicked. They don't realize that actually, they are prepared for the day of judgment. Yes, James the Apostle says right here, James 5, 5, 
They have fattened their hearts in a day of slaughter. They're not doing it deliberately. I want to be luxurious and I want to be fat and I want to be happy. And then on the day of judgment, I want God to destroy me in eternal torments and eternal misery. They don't openly, usually they don't openly say that. And even when they say it, sometimes they don't realize what they're saying. But usually the wicked don't do that. But that's what's happening. It's preparing themselves for the day of judgment. That's what he says there. Proverbs 16.4. Proverbs 16.4. The Lord has made everything for his own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Even the wicked people are created by God for the day of evil, for the day of slaughter, for the day of judgment. If the translation you use says its own purpose, well, that also fits in biblical theology. Its own purpose would mean, well, if the elect were made for the day of redemption, then they will be redeemed. But if the wicked are prepared for the day of evil, for the day of slaughter, for the day of condemnation, then they will be punished on that day eternally. Do they deserve it? Yes. Chapter 5, verse 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. This also confirms we're talking about the righteous poor because he's calling them the righteous man. The righteous poor, not the wicked poor, the righteous poor who are condemned to death. They have committed murder. Like he said in chapter 4, verse 2, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Yes, it is possible, and it happens every day. People who claim to be Christians, people who are in local churches, they watch pornography, they uh, fornicate, they commit adultery, they have sex with uh, children, they have sex with animals, just to name some sexual sins, and they say they're Christians. Yeah. And it's up to, and it's, all, it's just a relationship between them and the Lord. We have no room to judge them. That's how they say it. Yes, even yesterday uh, I saw a news article like that where a politician in the state of Oklahoma refuses to act on a certain bill and the reason was that it's up to the individual and the Lord, he said. It's up to the individual and the Lord on his sexual crime. So we don't have room to enact any laws. Yes, it happens in the southern states. It happens in the northern states. It happens all around the world. There are judges and lawmakers committing these abominations. And we're just talking about sexual sin here too. There are murderers who say they are Christians and they are saved. They were saved when they committed the murder. We're not talking about true repentance after the murder. There's a few cases when that happens, but usually they were said they were Christians before they committed the murder. They are convicted murderers and on death row and have no remorse and boldly say they are Christians. Their mothers say, they're not murderers. My boy is a nice boy, a good boy. Isn't that what happened in Uvalde uh, in San Antonio, Texas? That's what the mother said. The relative said, no, he was a good boy. No, no, he's a Christian. And even the mother, she, she's exposed now to be a wicked woman herself. You see what I'm saying? It happens all the time. We cannot claim to be Christians and hold on to sin like this and exploit other people. Verse 7. Verses 7 to 8. Verses 7 to 8. And actually, he introduces from 7 to 11 the need for patient perseverance. 
patient perseverance in 7 to 11. This is what he's urging. And in the meantime, a proper attitude. Right. In the meantime, a proper attitude, which is what he's confronting in verse 9, complaining, grumbling, and griping, and especially against one another. Okay? 7 to 11, patient perseverance. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Don't farmers do so? And he's speaking here of the land of Israel or land of Canaan. In the land of Israel, there were two main seasons of rain, plentiful rain. That is, he calls it here, the early and the late rains, twice a year, not primarily watered by rivers and streams and lakes and ponds and wells, though those were also the case. But the main sources were the early and late rains. And the farmer, he has to make the best of it. And he has to be patient. He has to depend on the Lord for these rains to come. He has to. And so he says, the farmer does so. If the farmer does so for the precious produce of the soil... Why can't we do so for the precious produce of the Holy Spirit working in the soul uh, or in the soil of our hearts? Why can't we do that to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit? We should do that. Farmers do it. We should do it. Not only farmers, 2 Timothy 2 mentions three professions or three occupations. 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 7, 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, 1 to 7. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, in the things which you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He says that, We ought to suffer hardship with the apostle as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. The apostle suffered. Timothy, the pastor, he's not an apostle. He's a pastor. He's supposed to suffer. And who else is supposed to suffer in verse 2? All of us. He says, these entrust to faithful men. Whomever is discipled by, whoever is discipled by Timothy is called here a faithful man. And then those faithful men are supposed to teach others also. This is generational, not just kept to the apostles. Yes, this is what the flesh says. Well, no, the prophets and the apostles, they were to suffer. Jesus was supposed to suffer, but not all of us. No, it's meant for all of us. As a soldier, a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And the good soldier, when he is in active service, he may not be able to sleep from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. He may not be able to eat three meals a day at the proper time. At the time that he used to eat when he was not in active service or when he was a civilian. Correct? When he's in active service, the battlefield circumstances dictate what he is able to do. And he's supposed to listen to his commander. He can't do whatever he feels like. And so his life will be a life of suffering, temporary physical suffering. The same with the athlete, verse 5. 2 5. The athlete 
If he's going to compete according to the rules, he must practice daily for hours and hours. He must make sure his diet is a very rigorous and controlled diet because he cannot have 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds of weight on him unnecessarily and then try to succeed and win the prize as an athlete. He has to do it according to the rules. He cannot cheat. You know, it's okay if I'm 30 pounds overweight, but I've got this drug and it's going to make me able to be the gold winner. I've got this drug and it's going to make me the gold winner. So I don't need to practice as much as I need to. I'm going to cheat. Contrary to the rules. Some athletes do that. But he says we can't do that. We have to do it according to the rules. And the same with the farmer. He calls him the hard-working farmer. Not the lazy farmer. The diligent, hard-working farmer. If these occupations, if the, the members of these occupations can do so for their physical benefits... Why is it pulling teeth to make the people of God in churches be hardworking, diligent, faithful, compete according to the rules, who say, I will do only what my commander, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, tells me? Why is it so hard? Why do we find so few? Verse 8. You to be patient. There he applies it to us. That's everybody. Like 2 Timothy applied it to everybody. We also, to everybody, we must do so. He says the means by which we do so. By strengthening the heart. You see, if the heart is demoralized... If the heart is demoralized, it will not do what is necessary. That's obvious with the soldier, correct? Like in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 20, the the soldiers, if they had certain things demoralize them, dispirit them from going to the battlefield, then their commanders were told, then send them home. Go send them home. Because I don't want them to be double-minded on the field or with a double heart on the field, on the battlefield. Just send them home. We need the dedicated ones, the single-minded ones, the single-hearted ones. Psalm 10, 17. Who will, who will strengthen the heart? Psalm 10, 17. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. This strengthening comes from God Himself. Not from the world, not from worldly methods, but only from God. But then if it does come from God, what is the practical means of it. What is the practical means of God strengthening the heart? Psalm 119, 28. 119, 28. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Our soul weeps because of grief, because of sufferings, afflictions, hardships, persecutions. That come our way. But he says that it is by the word of God that our hearts are strengthened. Not by the words of men, not by worldly methods, not by all of the things that people use. What do people use to strengthen their hearts? Temporarily and superficially. They use what? They use drugs. They use alcohol, they use pleasure, they use money, they use fame, right? They use sociology, anthropology, biology, 
psychology. They use all kinds of means. They use mediums, divination. They go to palm readers. They consult their horoscopes. They use all kinds of wicked means. But the Bible says this, the heart is strengthened by his word. And why? How urgent is this? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's at hand. It is near. As he also says in verse 9, the judge is standing right at the door. The return of Christ is imminent. We don't know the day or the hour. And whether he returns visibly and physically and personally to the earth to receive his church. If he comes that way or if we meet him because of our death and even a premature death. Even a premature death. In both cases, we need to be ready to meet the Lord. Isn't that what we read earlier? That the rich man in Luke 12, 13 to 21, he was so consumed about his maintenance and enjoyment of riches that he wasn't ready to die that day or that night. He wasn't ready. And then God called him a fool. We always should keep the coming of the Lord before us. Always keep the coming of the Lord before us because that will be our motivation to press on in holiness. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, 2 to 3. 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We will be like him when he returns, and we'll be able to see him face to face, We'll see his pure face, holy face. Therefore, that should be our desire now. Purification, sanctification, holiness, godliness. That should be our goal. But the tendency we have, when things don't go our way, and when, when we are short-sighted, when things are unpleasant, difficult for us, what do we do? James 5, 9. We complain, we murmur, we grumble, we attack one another unjustifiably. That's why he says, do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Do not complain wickedly, unjustifiably against one another. That's how he means it. Remember we saw in chapter 4, Chapter 4, 11, and 12. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to, who judge your neighbor? He's speaking of wicked, hypocritical, selfish, biased judgment against one another. He's talking about slander and malice and greed, covetousness that we might have and speak against one another. That's the kind of speaking or complaining he means. We saw from chapter 4 some cross-references on that. I'll leave you with that. But also, isn't James, in a sense, complaining and confronting the sins of the churches he's addressing? Of course he is. He's doing it throughout the whole letter from beginning to end. He's correcting their sins. So when in righteousness we are correcting another's sins, as he says in 5, 19, and 20, he exhorts us to do the same. That's not complaining in a sinful way. That's not what this verse means. It's obvious 
James himself is not a hypocrite. He's meaning, don't complain unjustifiably. And remember who the judge is, and do things according to the judge of heaven. Now, an example. Actually, he presents the prophets, and then in verse 11, one such prophet, and later in verses 17 and 18, another prophet. Prophets generally, 510, one specific one in 11, and that is Job, and then in 16 and 17, another prophet, Elijah. He does not mean to restrict the prophets to just Job and Elijah, but he's mentioning two that should be obvious and evident to everyone. Two of the very important and primary uh, of the prophets who suffered many afflictions. They all did in one way or another, but these we can identify very easily, Job and Elijah. And if we wanted a list of prophets from 510, we could read the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews, where many prophets are mentioned, and a few unnamed in Hebrews chapter 11. But even though in 510 he says, take the prophets as examples of suffering and patience, who spoke in the name of the Lord, that means they weren't suffering because they spoke in their own authority. They were suffering because they spoke the word of the Lord. And to the extent that we speak the word of the Lord, we're not ashamed of Christ or his words, Mark 8, 38. If we speak them, we'll also suffer persecution. Did James mean to restrict this to the prophets? No. One, he is writing to the whole church. By this point, in 5-7 till the end, he's drawing attention to the whole church, not just to the wicked rich, but the whole church. So he's meaning that we should look at the prophets as examples for us. Also in James, we see in James 5.17 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah is an example, not because of his office of prophet, but because of his nature as a man, like you and I are men. That's the way we should take it. And Jesus said so himself. Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Matthew 5, 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Aren't the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 1 to 12 applicable to all of the righteous, all of the believers, all of the elect? Yes. And even 5, 10 to 12 is a stress on all believers, not the prophets. He says, this is what will happen to you on account of me, because of me. They'll say it falsely, but don't worry. You're in the the company of the persecuted righteous prophets. You're suffering just like they suffered. You repeat the word of the Lord, they repeat the word of the Lord, and we all suffer together. However, 5.11, Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. God. Initially, in Job chapters 1 and 2, he heaped a ton of afflictions on Job. Whether... It was foreigners coming to attack, two sets of foreigners coming to attack, whether it was natural evil, a natural calamity, an east wind rushing from the desert and sweeping across 
and destroying his house and the inhabitants of the house. The fire of God fell from heaven as well, it says. But also in chapter 2, he lost his health. He lost his health. He lost his children. He lost his health. All that. But in chapter 42, 10 to 12, Job endured much affliction. None of us has undergone that much affliction. We have no room to gripe, no room to complain. Not at all. 42, 10 to 12. After his repentance, this is what God did. There's no guarantee God will do so in our life every time. It may happen, and it often does happen, but the assurance is this is a token and example of our life to come. In the life to come, we will exceed far beyond what we could imagine, far beyond what we could ask or think. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. God will provide. So 42.10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. We might also read 42.13. And he had seven sons and three daughters. He lost many children before, but God gave him ten more children. And 14 to 17, beautiful daughters, and after all of his afflictions, 140 years more of life. 140 years more of life. So, The examples of suffering and restoration are plentiful in the Bible. If God gave these examples, he gave the examples for us to be encouraged. Encouraged by his word to have patience and persevere through sufferings. Let's do it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.